Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk with Christina Miller, owner and founder of Christina T. Miller Sustainable Jewelry Consulting. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com. How you doing? Hi, I am doing okay. I got my second vaccine shot yesterday, and I'm really happy about it, but it did kind of throw me for a loop a bit. I did not sleep well. So um, I think I, I gave you a little heads up that I might sound deflated today. I'm going to try not to. Now you sound healthy and uh, you sound vaccinated. I sound vaccinated. I'm ready, ready for the world. It's party time. Exactly. I was, I was, it conked me out. So I guess you're. Uh... Yeah. It's kind of amazing to have this experience that everybody, at least however many million Americans have gone through it can relate to. So that feels good. And I, yeah, I feel great about it. I feel ready for the world. We have a, a wonderful guest, somebody I've interviewed numerous times. And I feel like whenever I have a question on anything related to sustainability or ethical sourcing, she is by far the number one person who comes to mind. I almost feel like I bother her sometimes because I always want to ask her questions. Many of you will know her because you've probably sat in on either her living room sessions or any of the countless webinars she's done over the last year. Her name is Christina Miller, and she is the owner and founder of Christina T. Miller Consulting, specializing in sustainable jewelry. She, from 2004 to 2015, was co-founder of Ethical Metalsmiths, another really important organization and really a pioneer in this conversation that we are all having Practically, you know, every week there's some version of this conversation about sustainable and ethical sourcing happening in the jewelry industry, and she's really been at the forefront of that. So welcome, Christina. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be chatting with you both. Yeah, you, uh, I guess I feel like I've seen you in the past, and we had a lovely dinner in New York now feels like a million years ago, but you're based in the village you specified of College Corner, Ohio, which is not really anywhere near New York or LA where Rob's in New York. And of course I'm in LA. Just briefly, tell us how you got to College Corner because that seems like not a hub for jewelry. <laughs> no, it's, it's not a hub for jewelry, but it certainly is where international activities on responsible sourcing and sustainability occur right out of my home office. But I'm here in this town because uh, my husband is a sculpture professor at Miami University of Ohio, and we opted not to live right in the college town of Oxford, but just here outside. And um, we live a mile and a half away from a state park, which is fantastic. Wow. Well, so your husband's a professor of sculpture and you also come from an academic, but a jewelry art academic background, right? Can you tell us about that? Because we'd love to hear how you got into jewelry and what your path into this industry was. Sure. I love that you're asking this because most people don't, you know, you're just, you're known for the thing that you do. But um, I always wanted to be an art teacher, right? It's like the thing in elementary school that you would draw pictures of yourself being. That's what I wanted to be. And, you know, I pursued it and I got my Bachelor of Fine Arts in jewelry and metalsmithing. And then I got a master's degree in jewelry and metalsmithing. And I took time off in between those. And during undergrad, I even got to do a year abroad. I studied jewelry making in Florence, Italy at a school called uh, Le Arteografe. Mm. And it was, it was excellent. Um, I was training to be 
a professor in a way. I didn't know. I thought I was going to be making art objects for galleries and I would be teaching. That was what my peers were doing. That's what the people I admired were doing. And in 2006, I landed a job at Millersville University in Pennsylvania doing that. And you wanted to be an art teacher, but jewelry specifically, or did jewelry come along? Jewelry came along later. I found, you know, my dad did stained glass work as a hobby. And one time I found copper wire in the basement and wanted to make my mom a pair of earrings for her birthday or Mother's Day or something. So I started playing around and making some things. And for a long time, there was a jewelry watchmaking school in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And so there was even a little shop in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where you could buy base jewelry making supplies, pliers, wire. Um, I had a little, you know, butane torch, like the same kind of torch that you use for making like creme brulee. And I would, you know, I would play around with wire. I used a cinder block and a ball peen hammer to put textures and, you know, things on. But but so I was pretty hooked on jewelry making. And I think a lot of it had to do with being able to just sink into this world of making that was very quiet, very precise, very concentrated, very focused. And um, I still kind of enjoy things that bring me to that place. Do you still make jewelry? I wish I did. I still actually have a studio because, you know, we're an artsy household. So we have a space with a full studio. I can do enameling. I can, for a while I was teaching classes when we first moved here and I was getting my bearings of being in Ohio. I um, taught some private lessons, I did some community events, and I even did some make-your-own-wedding-ring projects with local people. So, I mean, now it seems obvious. Now everybody is kind of on board this train, but when you got into sustainability and the ethical aspects of the jewelry industry, it was it was something that people weren't really considering, right? It was something that was relatively new, I guess. Yeah, um, I think it was 2005, my ethical metalsmiths co-founder, Susan Kingsley, and I presented for a SNAG conference, the Society of North American Goldsmiths. And it was about gold. And we invited a panel of presenters. They were um, Payal Sampat. She's the director of the International Gold Campaign. That's part of Earthworks. She was part of the No Dirty Gold Campaign. Mm -hmm. Also on the panel was Glenn Miller, not a relative of mine. <laughs> he is a retired professor from the University of Nevada at Reno. And he was doing a lot of work on large-scale gold mining. And then um, Tom Goldtooth, who is a Minnesota-based Native American leader, elder, and whose son has been actually really active on the oil pipeline activism. And so they presented, we shared some kind of facts and ideas, and then they presented their various points of view on gold. And literally, people would not talk to me and Susan in the elevator after our presentation when we were headed out of the hotel to go do something else. It was like, oh my gosh, these ladies are dangerous. Oh my God. Because they felt threatened that you were accusing them of something or... You know, it's really different now that I'm like in what we call the jewelry industry. I would say before when I was really active in snag and in jewelry and metalsmithing as an art form, 
And the designers, I would say a lot of designers feel this too, but there's a lot more heart and soul that goes into the thinking about the piece, the expectations that are in the piece, the emotion that's built into the piece. And it is really hard. And I've learned this now over the years talking with people. It is really hard to deal with the mixed emotions that arise when you're so in love with your material and you're so in love with what you do and you're pleased to bring objects into the world that people like and enjoy and appreciate to realize that that fresh piece of silver you bought as an undergraduate student, you know, it was like the equivalent of a blank sheet of white paper that you could write anything you wanted on. This blank sheet of silver was like ready for anything. Mm. And we call it our raw materials. But when you start going backwards from the time you got that piece of sheet metal, the story of how it got there is challenging. Mm. And was there anything that in particular really bothered you about the industry or that really kind of made an impression early on? You know, at the beginning for me, it was definitely large scale mining. And the reason for that is because, you know, in the United States and around the world, we pushed people aside. We, meaning the burgeoning U.S. government, pushed aside Native Americans really to access resources, to make way from one coast to the other. You know, sort of the, the whole ideas of, of manifest destiny and kind of creating life on this new land meant, in many cases, eradication of people and pushing them out of the way. And I spent time in 2007, Susan Kingsley and I did kind of a road trip. We went and visited a bunch of mine sites either new, about to be begun. And then we went to a mine that was in closure mode. Then we went to an abandoned copper mine. And then we also went to the Bingham Canyon copper mine. And we also went to an area in Nevada that has a long story. If you look up the Dan sisters, they were two Western Shoshone elders who were basically fighting for their land their entire life. And so you, you come up with this challenge where, you know, you've got a small community of people, right? They're small. They're, they're not very powerful against a really mighty force, which is the desire to, you know, profit from gold. Mm. And that along with the people, along with the waste, the inevitable pollution that's associated with large scale gold mining, the impacts to communities. I know it does have some benefits, right? It does bring some economic viability. So for example, in Nevada, schools in that region are well-funded. They're well-funded because of the taxes that the mining companies have to pay to, <laughs> to their communities. So it's a really complicated thing that I still am unpacking the complicated nature of. Wow. Yeah. Your original vision for ethical metalsmiths, like how did it come about and what was that? It turns out that Susan Kingsley and I, we didn't know each other before this, but it turns out that we were basically doing the same body of research. So the master's program I was in was a three-year program. It was a fine arts program, but we had to write a thesis. And so I was doing a lot of research about my materials. And at the same time, Susan Kingsley was writing an article for Metalsmith Magazine. And a mutual friend introduced us. And we were, you know, when you find your nerd buddy, 
and you realize you've been geeking out on the same information, you know, and you're comparing notes and you're realizing that just knowing and reporting the information wasn't enough way to do something. And it, it started pretty fast. Wow. So you and Susan co-founded Ethical Metalsmiths in 2004. And what did you first do? I mean, what was, were you trying to reach out to retailers or just to other, other metalsmiths and, and anybody in the industry? What was the kind of initial set of things you communicated? Yeah, the initial set of things we communicated were just, you know, are you aware? And it was primarily to the jewelry and metalsmithing audience. You know, it was to the artsy people, right? The art jewelers, the professors at universities around around the world, you know, mostly in the United States, but that kind of art jewelry community is pretty international. Mm. A woman named uh, Jennifer Horning joined us for a while she has a degree in environmental law. She went on to work for the organization Solidaridad and helped launch their artisanal gold programs where they were working with artisanal gold miners globally to improve their mining practices. So she was with us for a while and then she left and we just, we kept going. So tell us, well, first of all, you, you left in 2015 and we want to hear, you know, why you left and then founded your own consulting business. But in that time, in that 11 years that you were there, I mean, how would you describe the changes you saw in the industry and, and ethical metalsmiths as the advocate and the kind of, you know, advocating for the changes? I mean, was there a, a watershed moment or a milestone event that really pushed your mission forward or was it super gradual? Well, we founded at the same time that the No Dirty Gold campaign was launched. They were both in 2004. And what that did is it gave us quickly an alliance of other, I guess in some ways you could see ethical metalsmiths in those days kind of as a civil society coalition. Like we weren't trying to make a new trade outlet. We were an awareness raising educational organization. And because the No Dirty Gold campaign was going concurrently, we had access to organizations like Earthworks, Oxfam, and others to you know, help us. They assisted us in having information available to talk about what was happening. And what we did was we tried to appeal to the audience that we had at the time. So we did things like organized exhibitions. So we did calls for entry that were intentionally made to get people's wheels turning about where their materials come from. So uh, one was called Golden Opportunity. That was our first show. And people submitted work literally from all over the world. But it was an interesting way for us to engage the community in considering and creating kind of a collective understanding that, you know, this was something that we all needed to look at. I would say between kind of 2011 and 2015, we really started to get some recognition. It's when I first met Rob, actually. I was invited to be on a panel at one of Lisa Koenigsberg's conferences, and you were the interviewer. And I really didn't know, you know, how to, I think I was, you know, I was sitting next to someone from the State Department, and Cecilia Gardner was, you know, at the other end of the table. And, <laughs> and um you know, it was a matter of just saying, here's here's what we're seeing. Let's do something about it. Wow. Why, so why did you leave? Well, in 2015, running an organization like that is challenging. And I was a little worn out, frankly. We had had real success being uh, an organization that helped to catalyze fair mine gold in the United States. 
by convening a group of 23 jewelers to purchase a total of two kilos of gold initially from a Fairmine certified mine in Peru. And, you know, I was in a time in my life where I really had to focus on how was I going to make a living at that time running ethical metalsmiths, uh, didn't pay very, very well. <laughs> so it made, you know, it was kind of like hard on my sleeve every day, but really hard to um, make ends meet. For if anyone's listening to this and you you thought you were a member or you were participating in EM or getting mailing, they're shifting over their mailing list to another platform. So you have to resubscribe. So since then, you've been working, is it primarily with retailers or designers or, or kind of a mix? I would add another group to that category, and those are civil society organizations. Hmm. Actually, it's really interesting. In 2020, COVID year, and it's ongoing, some organizations had funds available for various reasons. In part, no one was traveling. So they were able to reallocate funds in different ways. And all projects you know, that NGOs and civil society are doing on the ground around artisanally mined material in particular, whether it be gold or gemstones or diamonds, they need to access the market. And they, they need people to help them understand how to navigate the industry, what kinds of messages people want to hear, how can you tell them a story in a way that they're going to accept it and be interested in it. So we've been doing a lot of research, actually, on behalf of these organizations to help galvanize an already active community when it comes to responsible sourcing to, again, do something pioneering. For us, the first thing that we do is really encourage people to look inward and work within their own thoughts about what it is they believe and how they can bring purpose to their jewelry. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is really thinking about the impact that you wanna have and then readying yourself to pursue sourcing decisions that match those values. So when presented with the opportunity to source gemstones from a known mining community that happens to be, you know, a cooperative of women in Tanzania, and, you know, the women are being trained how to value their stones more readily, and they're able to receive the payment directly from the buyer and you're able to trace that material from the site all the way to the finished jewelry, that matches what a lot of people perceive and believe ethical jewelry to be, right? It's something that is grounded and rooted in the relationships that we have with people all the way along the supply chain. A lot of our assumptions about what responsible is or what it could be are short-sighted in the beginning because we don't understand how complex <laughs> how complex anything is, right? How complex the world is, all these relationships that lean and depend on each other. So reminding people to recognize that it's a journey. Right. No, and, and you bring up recycled, and of course, I think that 
is one of these, I mean, so many jewelers today are designers. That's just, you know, their initial communication is, and we use recycled gold and therefore means we are 100% responsible and sustainable. But I don't know, I feel like we could probably spend a whole podcast just talking about recycled gold, but is there one takeaway you want people to understand about that category of gold? I'm looking forward to seeing the data on any of this. So if people can prove me wrong, I'd love to hear it. But recycling, change your mindset. Recycling as a solution to waste might apply to paper. It doesn't apply to gold because gold is not wasted, right? So all the gold that's ever been mined exists on the surface of the earth, you know, or buried deep in a bank vault, but nevertheless, mm -hmm. it is available. There is no indication that reusing that gold that we all know is on the surface of the earth is doing anything to reduce new mining. We want people to be engaged. And when you choose the recycled option, you should choose, you know, like you should be using recycled gold, right? But you should not be making claims about it that you can't substantiate because it also leads to a disengagement from very clear indicators that we need to be doing more, for instance, and gold mining companies will be mad at me about this, but gold mining on the large scale is still causing problems. Artisanally mined gold still presents tons of challenges to us, including being the sector that emits the most mercury into the environment. So there is a lot we need to engage on and so use recycled gold, but there are ways to source gold from artisanal mining communities, for example, that you can see the tangible difference that it's making. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was just talking to somebody who is one of these people who sells fair mind and fair trade products. And he has a lot of difficulty because the fair mind product in particular has a premium. People will come in and they'll say recycled versus fair mind. And they'll say, well, both of them are good in their mind, but one is cheaper. So I'll go with a cheaper option if they're both quote unquote good. The, the term recycled, I think, is very powerful. And, and certainly, I mean, the other issue with recycled gold is that a lot of it isn't recycled and some of it's recycled from dubious sources. Yep. Well, if it's your value, you know, if it's something that, that you want to promote, then, you know, I've spoken with other retailers who say you just, you don't lead in the conversation with a differentiation between one or the other. So the person is coming in looking for a wedding band, let's say they're coming into the store, they're shopping online and they're looking for something that they like how it looks. And you have this option by this designer. We have this option by that designer. This one, you test it out. These pieces by Toby Pomeroy are made with Fairmind Gold. In fact, Fairmind Eco Gold. And if the person lights up and there's some kind of resonance, then you continue on that story and you tell them the story about where that gold came from and the impact that it's actually having. I know in some cases, I think to really get to a good kind of closed loop or circular economy, it'd be great if we could really have truly post-consumer recycled gold material that, you know, we knew that it was a ring and then it became a ring and then it became a ring and then it became a ring and the supplier could uh, verify that then we could really start to measure, you know, how over time it is having less and less and less and less of an impact. Like it's sort of wearing out its initial cost. But, you know, a story I tell is that there's an ancient gold mine in Jordan 
that is continuing to leach acid mine drainage, right? So all that gold that's already on the surface of the earth, we still need to do the work to clean up our past activities. Are you optimistic about like, are things like blockchain going to be critical in, in helping us understand where our gold is from and how it's gotten to us? I mean, are there things that make you feel hopeful that this conversation will be you know, it will be so par for the course that we won't really be having it as much because everybody will be using responsible gold. Well, that's the idea, right? That it's it just becomes the norm and these are the materials that are available and this is how they get to us. Blockchain and kind of new technology does offer some really great opportunities to create transparent supply chains that have the capacity to kind of also create more equity. You know, we see if you're a large scale mine, you profit on the mining side. And then, you know, the other place where the profit is really made is at sale, at retail. And people struggle in the middle. So some of these traceability programs really help us make a more transparent cycle of information as well between the miner, the purchaser, the refiner, the end purchaser, right, the brand and looping back so that there is more sharing of information throughout, in part uh, so that the benefits of participating in this industry can be felt throughout the supply chain in a more equitable way. So I've probably only been to one artisanal mine in my life in uh, Sierra Leone, but do you want to tell people what that's like? And I don't know how many you visited, but what the experience is like, when you're involved with these projects, are you able to see kind of tangible results? Yeah. So my eyes on mines is limited in that the mines that I visited were all mining organizations, already organized groups in Latin America. That's where I visited, Peru and Colombia. And they were all organizations that either had already achieved their Fairmine certification or were working toward their Fairmine certification. So these were already quite well-established, well-governed, organized groups who had the capacity to achieve the certification. What is able to be achieved there in terms of improvements, though, is so people always ask, you know, about the Fairmine premium and, and why is it so much? It is an amount of money that has been recognized to be an actual incentive, you know, in the mines that I visited to the mining organizations to get certified and participate. So in a way, they're meeting our Western demands for a standard, for certification, for traceability, for being able to deliver all the necessary documentation, meet the law, be legal, et cetera, et cetera. And we pay them for that. You know, the language is an ideal, buy a premium, but really we are paying them to meet our standards, right? And in the process, we are also encouraging them to improve what they have going on. So for example, in the Fairmine standard, a mine can be certified if it's using mercury, but it has to have a mercury reduction plan that it works on and improves every year that it's certified. I mean, when you go to the, one of those places, can you describe it? I mean, we always hear how poor the people are. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So again, with direct experience, the sites that I visited have been in, you know, they're kind of, they're rough little towns. 
where people are living. But in the places that I visited, there are schools, you know, always important to the community is having like soccer field when you're in Latin America. But no, people that are participating in that in the fair mind system are doing pretty well. Elsewhere in the world, it's a it's another story. And at other mine sites, it's another story. So there's a lot of work being done to try to stop that, but it's challenging. Wow. Is there anything you want to say just as a wrap up, anything that on this conversation of sustainability that you think, you know, our listeners who really are a varied bunch should know or might want to think about? I think for everyone listening, getting engaged, don't dismiss things, find a way. Uh, We owe it to people that have not really had the opportunity to thrive in places from where we've been removing material for centuries. So we as an industry, we have a lot of work to do to align the beauty and glamour and love that we say our pieces represent with the other side of the story that we're not giving enough attention to. Wow. And uh, where should people get in touch with you if they want to? Well, our living room sessions, you can access that through Christina T miller.com. If you do Christina miller.com, you're going to end up like at a dentist's office or a vet or something. <laughs> so make sure you have the T, the middle initial Christina T miller.com. then on our website, one of the great places to get started is through our living room sessions. Cause we tackle a variety of these topics, but in a really practical way with designers on talking about the challenges they face trying to do this and working through a whole bunch of things that they can consider and really trying to emphasize this appetite for complexity. So come visit there, and that's a great place to get started. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Thank you.